In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. God created the world, and in creating the world, and in his revelation of himself, we come to know that God is one and three. One God and three persons. This is revealed to us very quickly in the book of Genesis as we read that the Lord God created the heavens and the earth. And then on the sixth day, when he creates man, he says, let us make him in our image. So immediately we have one God and three persons. We see this trinity revealed to us again in uh, the person of Abraham and the angels that come to him. These three angels that get referred to as three and then as one Lord. And again and again the Lord reveals himself from Genesis on as one God who is in three persons. St. Patrick uh, shows the native of uh, Ireland this uh, message by showing them the clover leaf. You'll remember he says, how many clover leaves do you see? And they say, there's one. And he says, but how many uh, are there in that one? And they say, there's three. So how can there be three and one at the same time? And again and again, the fathers of the church show and reveal to us how we can have one God and three persons. This Holy Trinity reveals himself to... Moses, and he reveals himself to Moses again in this kind of uh, way in which we see that uh, there's an angel appearing, but then there's the Lord himself appearing. So is it an angel or is it, a Lord? Is it the Lord? And we have to say, yes, <laughs> it is. Both an angel of the Lord and the Lord himself who appears to Moses. Moses is perhaps the most humble personage that we see in Holy Scripture. Uh, this is the, the personality, uh, the character that marks Moses. And it makes it really difficult if you've ever seen uh, Charlton Heston's uh, Ten Commandments because Charlton Heston is such a grand figure, you know. Uh, humility is not what comes out of that, uh, of that movie. But if you read the scriptures and you read who Moses is, you see that he is uh, so humble in all that he does. Indeed, Moses never really has a home. At the time that he's born, Pharaoh is killing all the male children. And his mother, you remember, hides him in this wicker basket, this ark, if you will, and puts him in the river. And so he's immediately uh, thrown to the waters. He is uh, motherless, he is homeless, and he is adrift, literally, in the waters of the Nile. He's brought out of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter and given a home there, but he is not an Egyptian, and he is not truly of the house of Pharaoh. And so when he commits murder, uh, he is immediately uh, uh, one who would be killed, right? He's under the penalty of death. And so now he's a murderer, truly, without a home again. And as he flees into the wilderness, uh, homeless and adrift again, he gets taken in by Jethro, and uh, he works for Jethro. He marries Jethro's daughter, Zipporah. And you'll remember that uh, here he is uh, managing his uh, father-in-law's sheep. He's acting as a shepherd for his father-in-law. And the shepherd is the lowliest kind of worker in the ancient world, right? The shepherds spend all their time outside. They spend their time away from the home. They spend their time away from the city. They're not an elder who is managing. So here is Moses, again, totally adrift. He is in the lowest totem uh, working for his own father-in-law. And this is when he turns aside and he sees the Lord appear to him in the burning bush. 
Sometimes people like to think uh, that we have some kind of special knowledge because of our technology. Uh, This is uh, ridiculous. We have no uh, special knowledge that the ancients didn't have. Uh, The ancients, many of them, had uh, a really amazing understanding of astronomy and of geometry and of mathematics. And all you have to do is look to the pyramids to see their understanding of architecture and of engineering. And so we sometimes want to think that they didn't have an understanding of the working of the natural world. Well, Moses knew that if a bush was on fire it should be consumed right and so he notices the difference between a bush that's burning and should be consumed and one that isn't being consumed at all he's recognizing that this is not within the natural order and yet we have a god who is in the natural world he's eternal he's outside of the natural world of creation but here he appears to moses inside the natural world he appears to moses inside of creation as fire in this burning bush that is not destroyed and again the lord reveals himself as three in one he gives uh, these three names he says i am the god of abraham i am the god of isaac i am the god of jacob And so he gives these three patriarchs as the identifiers of who he is. And he teaches Moses about holiness. He teaches him that when we approach God, when we approach him in his holiness, that there's something required of us. That we are not supposed to just go on as we have been going on. We're not supposed to live just as we have been living. But that there's something required of us to come into God's holiness. And this is a very important thing for us to remember. As we seek to pray, as we seek God's will, as we seek his protection, as we seek his guidance, there's something required of us. We have to participate in God's holiness. We have to be willing to humble ourselves the way Moses did to come into his holiness. And so the Lord says, humble yourself, take off your shoes. This is a holy place that you are standing. What makes it holy? What makes it holy is the presence of God. Right, And so whatever makes this place holy or makes your home holy or makes your car holy is when the Lord is invited in and we respond to his holiness, when we're willing to submit ourselves in humility to his holiness. While Moses is the most humble personage or person that we might see, of course our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ takes humility to a grand scale. We cannot perceive humility any greater than that which God shows in becoming man. This God that is outside of time and space, that has made all things, enters into creation. And he doesn't enter into creation the way you would see in a Marvel movie, for instance. Or the way that we would uh, uh, pretend a deity to come in in some great Greek tragedy, right? Where this great deity comes in all muscle-bound with gold and flowing capes and magnificence, right? How is it that God comes into uh, the creation? He comes in as a baby, And there is nothing more helpless than a human baby. Nothing that requires more care that is completely, completely dependent upon the caregiver the way a human baby is. Babies require intense care for years before they're finally able to start to participate in their own care and safety. Where all of the other animals that we see in nature are able to start participating in their own safety almost immediately upon birth. Standing and walking and moving and searching for food. A human infant is totally and completely helpless. Uh, in response to the caregiver and our lord and savior becomes this helpless baby and he uh, too is this divinity that resides in the virgin mary and she too is not consumed she is not destroyed even though god dwells within her 
this point that we're at in John's gospel is very early in the gospel, chapter 3. And we see Nicodemus three times. This is the first time that we see Nicodemus. You remember that he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a member of this uh, Jewish ruling council, this religious authority. The first time he comes to Jesus, he comes at night. Uh, he's afraid of the ruling authorities. He's afraid of those and what Jesus is doing to the ruling authorities, what it is that he's proposing. He's proposing a radical reading of the scriptures, a radical understanding of who God is and how the people are supposed to respond. He's bringing them back to that understanding of complete humility and holiness. And Nicodemus asks, you know, how can I proceed in the kingdom of God? How can I enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Or we might read that, you might have to be born from above. And he sets for us these two paths that we see again in St. Paul. The path of the flesh and the path of the spirit. Now this isn't to say that our bodies are not holy. It's not to say that creation is not good. Creation is good. Our bodies are good. But we're seeing here these two paths, the paths of the flesh, which means selfishness, me first, what I need for my body to make myself comfortable, or the spirit of the flesh, which is the spirit of humility towards God, of holiness, of righteousness, of seeking God's will. And so Jesus says you can either choose the flesh and that which is born of the flesh, born of selfishness, born of greed, or that which is born of the spirit, born of righteousness, born of humility. And he says if you want to be born of the spirit, you have to have your spirit born again. And he shows us the, the path in baptism. This is baptism he's talking about here, right? He says you have to be born of water and the spirit. This is how we baptize. People have to repent. They have to say, I don't want to live the way I'm living anymore. I want to reject evil. I want to choose God. We wash them in water, right? This is the cleansing, the washing of all the stain of sin. And then we anoint them with the Holy Spirit. And we say, may the Holy Spirit come into you and direct your heart and your mind. So we're saying, I don't want to direct my own heart and mind anymore. I've been a bad driver. The places I've chosen to go are not the places I'm supposed to be. I want the Lord to be my driver. I want Him to determine my path. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to come into us, and now it's the Holy Spirit who's directing our path. And the Lord's saying that if you want to have a part in the kingdom of God, you have to allow God the Father to be your driver. He has to be your Lord and Savior. He's the one who's determining your path and the way that you will go. And so he says, unless you do this, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. This places an immense kind of importance on baptism, a kind of importance that it's, it's shocking to see how some might kind of dismiss baptism or think of it as just a symbol or just an entryway into the community. He's saying either you are baptized or you don't enter the kingdom of God. It places this most important uh, place in the sacrament of baptism. It is essential for our participation in the kingdom of God. Now, can the Lord save people who aren't baptized? God can do what he wants, right? But we know what we're supposed to do. We've read the scriptures, and so there's a burden of response upon us. We have to respond to God. And this is what St. Paul is teaching us about how to respond here in his letter to the Romans. He teaches us uh, how to respond and he uses this beautiful theological word that we've read before, this very important theological word, if. If. This is very important in St. Paul's uh, letters. And there's actually two uh, ifs and another word that functions as an if. If is a conjunction. 
right? Those of you that are my age, you remember conjunction, junction from Schoolhouse Rock, right? Connecting words, phrases, and clauses, you remember that, right? And if, but, if, remember? If connects two things. And so does this um, other word that he uses, provided. Provided. Provided is another conjunction, a conditional conjunction. You can have these good things, you can have participation in the kingdom of God, provided you take your shoes off and participate in God's holiness. You can hear the word of God, provided you submit yourself humbly to him and say, God, you're the one who is driving the bus. You're the one who's leading my life. You're the one who's directing. And so this is what St. Paul says. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. So if we choose selfishness, if we choose our ways, the consequence of that is death. It's just a consequence. It's not a punishment. If you step off the curb and you don't look which way you're going, you're going to get hit by the bus. God is not punishing you for not looking off the curb. It's the natural consequence of not looking where you're going. If we choose selfishness, if we choose to serve ourselves, if we choose to reject holiness, the consequence of that is death. That's it. He says, but if you are going to live by the Spirit, then you will be sons of God. You will participate in His kingdom. You will be heirs. You will be adopted. And it's a beautiful uh, understanding of adoption, because in adoption we take someone who is not of our flesh, right, who is not of, of our blood, and we bring them into our family, and we make them participate in the community of our family. So they learn how we eat, they learn how we dress, they learn how we speak. In adoption, we take on the ways of that adoptive family. And so we are being adopted by God. We're being adopted into His family. It's up to us to say, okay, Lord, how do you live in this family? How do you talk? How do you eat? How do you walk? How do you dress? How is it that you live your life? What's important? What are the priorities in this family? And if we live according to the ways of God in His family, then uh, we will become fellow heirs. And the central the central aspect here, the central focus, St. Paul saves for the ending of this passage, and he uses this beautiful provided, provided we suffer with him. Yay! You're all so enthused. Provided we suffer with him. He suffered for us. This is what love is. Love is suffering for somebody else. If we're not suffering for somebody, if we're not putting them first, we're not loving them. Love requires suffering. It requires saying, I'm going to give up what I wanted and I'm going to do what is needed for you. So if we are willing to give up our own priorities and our own way of living and we're willing to submit to God, to walk in His ways, now there's lots of ways we can suffer. I suffer all the time because of the stupid things I choose to do, right? This is not the suffering he's talking about. If I decide to do my own thing and to rely on my own smarts and to just take what I can when I can, I'm going to suffer for that, and I've done that. Maybe I'm the only one here, but I've done that, right? I've suffered for my own stupid decisions, right? This is not the suffering St. Paul is talking about. He's talking about the suffering that comes out of love, out of self-sacrifice and obedience to God's will. We are promised when we live as Christians that we will suffer. That's why you all had to choose numbers to get seats in here this morning, right? Right? Because everybody wants to be invited into that. Yes! We get to suffer for God. But what's the alternative? A life of death. 
A life of loneliness. A life of isolation. A life without God. Choosing our own way. Devoid of holiness. That is no choice. God first loved us. God is love. He is love because he is eternally three in one. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Spirit. The Spirit has always loved the Father. And they have always, from before all time, humbled themselves before each other. Humbled themselves in love from out of eternity. And we are called into eternity and that same sacrifice of ourselves that we may dwell in the kingdom of God forevermore. And we are able to do that whenever we submit whenever we submit our wills to him and call upon our Father, Abba Father. When we call upon him, the windows of heaven are opened and the holiness of the kingdom of God dwells within us and among us and we are found in him this day and forevermore.